crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. So you have an idea, but you're not sure what the full potential of that idea is. How do you take that idea and actually make a company out of it? That's what today's episode is all about. We're chatting with Ravi Balani from Alchemist Accelerator. He's going to teach all of us how to go from an idea to a company. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Grow Show. So, Ravi, most of the people who listen to our podcast, they're startups, they're entrepreneurs, they're marketers, salespeople, they're, they're, they're working hard trying to get better at what they're doing. So what's it like being a startup in today's world? What, like, what do you think are like, the benefits of being an entrepreneur today compared to like a decade or two ago? Well, it is the best time, I think, to be an entrepreneur. There's so many things that are available to enable entrepreneurs to succeed that didn't exist 10 years ago. The beautiful things about being an entrepreneur today are, one, you have access to capital. So the ability to get access to capital is everything is becoming a service, both technology as well as capital. And the world is just becoming flatter. So you can get access to talent globally. Everything now is a service and everything is dropping to effectively be free. So if you joined a platform like Alchemist or a bunch of others, you could even be given free utility Mm -hmm. computing credits. So Everything you need to start a company is now available to you. The only cost is your time, effectively. So it is a fantastic time on that sense to be an entrepreneur. The flip side of it is is that now there's a lot of competition. There's never been more competition than ever, right? Suddenly, you have a ton of other startups. And so now you have to rise above the noise. and, And you have to be able to secure the best talent, compete against the other founders for the more advanced stages of capital, you're trying to differentiate yourself with others. And so it's it's a much more competitive market than it's ever been also to be an entrepreneur. So yeah. it's the best of times. And in some senses, it's not the worst of times, I would say, but it's 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 a different time. Yeah, there's new challenges. Yeah. yeah. And it's like you mentioned hiring great people there. Yeah. That's clearly one differentiator that you have to be able to pull off to be a successful startup and entrepreneur today. Mm-hmm. What else? What, do you, what are the things that a company today has to focus on being great at? I mean, those things might be a little different than they were focusing on 10, 20 years ago. Well, I think the key elements, if I'm thinking about what separates the great founders from the good founders, there's a few elements. One mm-hmm. is, is that I think today persistence matters more than mm-hmm. intelligence. Okay. So that's, that's a shift that I think has happened more recently because the idea that's popping up in your head, I guarantee you, is popping up. Uh, very, very quickly, if, if not already, in many other people's heads as well. So the premium for an idea, I think, is a lot lower today. And execution, there's, there's a much bigger premium on execution. So the ability to just persist, you know, you have to be present to win. And being able to drive a process is, I think, one of the hallmarks of great entrepreneurs today that I'm noticing, which is probably different than 10 years ago, where you could have walked in with a great idea and been funded just based on the potential of the idea. Yeah. Now, having said that, I'm going to say something that might sound conflicting, but the best founders I find today have this bifocal nature where they simultaneously can look in the near term on the next three things they need to get done, but also can paint a long-term vision in a very compelling way. You know, I teach teach entrepreneurship at Stanford, so the academic definition Mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship comes 
one of the more used definitions comes from Harvard Business School, which is that entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources controlled. And what that means in another way is, is that really the main asset you have as an entrepreneur is the potentiation of an idea. It's not a hard asset. You don't have any resources. Yeah. And you're taking that idea as currency to get talent, to get capital, to get customers. So the best founders can sell a great pitch or a great vision, mm -hmm. and they can transform something that would might sound as, like, as a commodity, as a feature, into a platform or into an aspirational idea. And that ability to just communicate also can be rewarded very strongly, especially on the institutional venture capital side. And so the best ones do both. The best ones are able to simultaneously distill a very compelling, aspirational, billion-dollar opportunity, or a big opportunity that yeah. people can get their heads around, yeah. and then tactically know the next three things they need to get done and get those done very quickly. Okay, so we're, we're, we're in San Francisco. We're in, in the the cradle of consumer technology and a lot of great technology companies that everybody knows about. But your focus is really on the B2B, the enterprise, the underappreciated side of the world. You know, the advice I always give to people just generally in life is find the most important thing nobody cares about and do it. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's kind of what uh, I think in some ways the B2B enterprise technology space does and is. We talked a little bit about how startups have changed. How have the niche B2B businesses and entrepreneurs changed? And how do you go about finding the right problems to solve there if you're trying to, trying to do something new? The beautiful thing about B2B versus consumer is, is that in consumer, you can get a lottery ticket where you have a $10 billion outcome in a relatively short period of time. That happens more frequently than in, in enterprise. But statistically, also on the consumer side, the vast majority of companies are going to have zero value. Yeah. On the enterprise side, it's really nice to build a product that people will pay for, and there's nothing wrong with getting cash from a customer versus a VC. And right. you control your fate more then because you can actually, many of our companies will actually either decide not to take venture money or take less or just be customer funded. There's something really awesome about being an entrepreneur with full autonomy. And even if you do take in VC money, you have real customers that can trump your board in terms of saying, you know, I have a clear compass because I'm mm -hmm. serving people that clearly have a need. We also love the enterprise space because it tends to be a contrarian space. So especially if you're in your 20s and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do enterprise. I only know consumer st mm -hmm. stuff. Well, all of your colleagues are thinking that way too. Mm -hmm. Aaron Levy, you know, he started Box as a consumer startup. Fascinating guy. Yeah, fascinating guy. Yeah. And, you know, he pivoted from a consumer company to an enterprise company. I would rather be king of a domain where there's less competitors than, you know, be a small fish in a, in a very crowded Well, yeah, and I think what strikes me and what's interesting about the B2B space, and Box, I think, is a very good example of this. People probably know less that Box is also really trying to embed themselves as being the infrastructure for document hosting and, and file management for anything, right? For developers building applications. And it seems like that is happening more and more across the B2B world where you're having very much service platforms being built that make it easier for other companies to get up and running and scale faster. Yeah. Is that, are we going to continue to see that happen? For any venture-backed company, you will. Okay. The reason why is, is that you have a lock-in effect when you build a platform. So platform mm -hmm. is an overused term. Everybody wants totally. to be a platform. And the question is, what is valuable about having a platform? Um, the natural progression I think you're going to see a lot of is companies when you're starting off, and this is again going to that bifocal dynamic that I was talking about before, you have to start off with a product that has a clear market that you're addressing. You'll be faulted if you paint a big vision for not executing in the short term in traction. But once you've built your killer app, then it's very natural to want to extend 
that app by having other people access and expose whatever you had a competitive advantage on and build on top of it. The other advantage of that is, is that you create a network effect. Mm -hmm. So I think one other framework to think about if you're starting a company is, is that in the short term, you need to have a reason why you win. And most VCs like to have a 10x differentiation. So that's mm -hmm. some trade-off that you're making where if you have an algorithm, maybe you're sacrificing quality for speed. And you're like, you know, we're just going to be 10 times faster and we're going to compromise on fidelity or some mm -hmm. quality metric. But there's some trade-off that you're making, which is where the source of your initial short-term advantage is. Or you're going to be doing the best UX, but you're going to be sacrificing some features, sure. whatever. But you're going to make some short-term trade-off, which is going to create the thesis as to why you will win, which a VC can hang their hat on for the short term. But for the long term, that's not enough because... Inevitably, if you build out a product that actually does prove to be a winning formula, you will very quickly get a ton of competitors, especially in today's world because the costs mm -hmm. of capital are so low. Absolutely. And especially if you're looking at any international markets, you know, there are industries that have been built on being fast followers to things that are just breaking out in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the only way to then beat that is, and, and the heuristic or the thought exercise to go through as a founder is, if somebody built a technically identical ripoff of your product, why would you still win? And the answer to that is inevitably going to be based on some network effect or externality, which is even if somebody built out the product technically, you would still win because there's an externality that's in your favor. So a classic one right now is having third parties build on top of your platform. Sure. And in the B2B space, the classic network effects are things like uh, WhatsApp or Skype, where they're communication-driven network effects. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think you're going to continue to see people chasing what they're going to call platforms, but really it's the API ecosystem and trying mm -hmm. to have other parties be the place where everybody's building on top of them. Isn't the other aspect of their, you know, why, why do you win if somebody has the same product? Well, one of them is like some type of network effect, so building off APIs, data infrastructure some of those things isn't there also like go to market differentiation that applies there you know as an entrepreneur like how do you balance you know just building a good product with building that differentiation out well what matters is that you have a consistent strategy that you can get cash against <laughs> so it's a very practical so, answer i love that in general what i would say is that you as a founder have to make a decision between one of three things and you can't do two or of these three you have to <laughs> either do growth monetization or engagement okay and what I would do is get clear, and they, there can be different horizons where each is going to be important, but I would get clear on where you're going to get the most premium at each horizon. And the venture markets shift. Sometimes people will put a premium on growth. Sometimes they'll put a premium on monetization. Engagement is really actually, I think, the most difficult one, but it's oftentimes the one that doesn't reward you the most in traditional venture circles. Yeah, it seems like monetization is what people are more focused on these days in the venture world. And monetization also has its trade-offs, I will yeah. say. So, so the, the reality is, is that there's no silver bullet and you sort of have to figure it out. The beautiful thing about monetization is, is that it's a way to clearly demonstrate product market fit. You don't have to yeah. get into a religious argument about if your customers value the product because you have people paying for it. The downside of monetization is, is that uh, you have something suddenly to measure. So suddenly somebody's <laughs> going to measure you on the multiple of your monetization versus the potentiation of an idea. And you also might be sacrificing real value. The, yeah. the real value might actually be not in the monetization, but in building up the network effect, yeah. which is really where the long-term value is. Yeah, the monetization of the network effect long-term versus yeah, the, the, the product short-term. Versus, versus compromising the network effect to show monetization today. Yeah. 
I would say that if you're beginning and you're just totally confused, monetization is a great way to go. (laughs) And and there's lots of great metrics on best practice multiples for MRR and growth rates that we can go over. Um, If you don't do monetization, I think it's very important that you have a criteria that would be the equivalent of validating product market fit Mm -hmm. or what we would call validating willingness to pay. So even if somebody's not going to actually pay you, you need to have a pretty stringent criteria to know that there's actually willingness to pay. One of my favorites is Sean Ellis's. Mm -hmm. So Sean Ellis is very famous for being the CMO, the first marketing executive in industries that are hyper commoditized Mm -hmm. and then creating the winner. So he was the CMO Mm -hmm. at Dropbox, at Eventbrite. And one of his, and all these companies, they didn't monetize, and that was the right call, right? Mm-hmm. In the beginning, they, they really focused on growth. But the way that he was validating willingness to pay was that his metric was that he needed 40% of active users to answer a survey where they were asked, how disappointed would you be if this product did not exist on a scale of one to five, one being very disappointed, five being very happy, mm-hmm. that he would need 40% of the users to say that they would be very disappointed that the product didn't exist Mm -hmm. to validate that he had a killer product. Now, let's say you surveyed 100 people and only four said that they would be very disappointed. But those four were males who were between 25 and 29 in Boston. Right. And of the 100, you only had 10 that were males that were 25 to 29 in Boston. Well, you have 40% then within that segment. And then that's your segment that you focus on and you build the next product around that segment. So that's the other sort of formula if you don't want to go down the monetization path to validate product market fit. Part of this is like, man, you're going down a road sometimes and you need to change direction. Yep. Right? And sometimes capital dictates that you need to change direction. Sometimes engagement, all those things you were just talking about. If you are in life and you are an entrepreneur or even if you're a contributor at a, at a startup, how do you know when to shift your strategy? Well, the best way to know to change is when you have something to say yes to, when you have something that you know is a a compelling fit or need. The danger oftentimes comes that you're not going to get somebody who's going to hit you over the head saying, this is not compelling enough. Mm -hmm. It's great to be in hell. If you have have a product where you know it sucks or everybody's saying, this sucks, this is awful. It's an easy problem to fix. It's an easy problem to fix. (laughs) The problem is, is that entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs for a reason. You have to have a conviction in what you're doing. And the problem is that when you're in purgatory, when... You have something that you're like, oh, I know we have these issues, but this is sort of good. There's some goodness here. Some people like it. I can't give up now. Some people like it. The way you know if you have a product that's actually compelling is if people tell other people about it. There's that Sean Ellis thing. If people are telling other people about your product, then you've actually passed the bar of having something that's compelling enough. If people are not telling other people about your product, but they say, oh, I like it you've not passed the bar. And the reality is is that you should be constantly looking for that thing that will become a killer need. So the best way to pivot is if you have something to say yes to instead of saying no to something. Because entrepreneurs, by their very nature, hate saying no. Okay, So <laughs> it's very difficult to say, hey, this is when you have to say no. Uh, what I would say is start with a customer and just literally just shadow them for ideally like two days. Just mm-hmm. watch them. You will know when there's something that they really hate. Or there might be something that you really hate to address. And ideally, you should know if you're onto something good if people are telling other people about it. Now, if you're in the, are they the doldrums? The doldrums, what was that in uh, Phantom Tollbooth? Do you remember that? Where they like, <laughs> yeah. the doldrums and it's like, oh, it's so comfortable in here. But I'm not, he's <laughs> not really going anywhere, right? That's danger land as a startup. Is you're like, you like the lifestyle of being a founder. There's sort of good things that are happening with the product. 
but you're not going up and to the right. People aren't telling other people about your product. It's, an, it's a good product, but not a great mm-hmm. product. That's danger territory. Things are not bad. It's not hell, okay? But you really do need to have a third-party objective criteria to hold yourself accountable to. This is what a board would do once you get funded. And you yeah. sort of need to have a proxy for that. And there can be a, a set of these criteria that I've been talking about yeah. that are all different heuristics to sort of set yourself up against. Yeah, lar- largely, you know, what we've talked about is you, just, you need to know what good is. You need to know what great is. <laughs> the problem is, is that everybody knows what good is, but very few people know what great is. Okay. Yeah, I think you need to know what great is. The best companies, I mean, this is the, the cream of the crop, are getting to like a million dollar ARRs in 12 months. There's a path where they can show visibility post-product launch. Yep. Their gross churn, I think, is less than 3%. Their net churn is certainly less than 0%, so you're not you're, you're having positive growth. Yep. You're growing by 10 to 30% month over month, ideally tw- mm-hmm. 20% or north, and you're getting to a clip. I mean, you should be, if you're a B2B company and you're doing a SaaS-based MRR, you should get to 3 to 4K MRR uh, with a product within 3 to 4 months. And you don't need to have the product built out. Here's another rule is that if you find the right product, you don't need the product to be built out. If you find the right product, somebody will pay you because they, they just need it to exist in the world. Yeah. And the reality is that your products are never done. So there's always tons of stuff to come. So really on the B2B side, when you're doing sales, you're doing partnerships. It's somebody who believes in the vision of what you want to solve and they want to be a partner with you for the long haul. So if you've identified a pain point that's salient enough for a customer, they will pay you based on the vision of what you're building just to be one of your first three partners effectively where they get to be involved in the customer development process. Okay. So as we're getting ready to finish up, even if you raise capital and you have a board or if you're in an accelerator and you have a support network, you still need a broader support network. How do you find the right people to advise you, to help you, even just beyond the investor side of things? So first of all, I don't think your investors should be your advisors. Uh, so please. There's some conflict of interest there. Yes. Yeah. Investors will all say, we are our CEO's best friend. We pride ourselves on really helping our companies out. The reality is, is that if you have a board, their legal fiduciary duty is to first decide if you should stay a CEO. So you should not have the board be the place where you're exposing all of your insecurities because the board has a duty to make a decision about you. So you want to set up an independent advisory board, which you can really treat as a place to get honest advice. And you should do this even ideally before you get funded. When you need them, when you have a conflict with your investors, it's too late to appoint an independent board member or somebody who's going to have to make a deciding call. The other thing is, is that when you are in a crisis situation, it's too late to start to try to create a relationship with somebody to turn (laughs) to. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. Part of finding the right advisors, there is a little bit of a chemistry match where they have to like you and they have to choose you. Mm -hmm. But part of that could just be a courting process where you find people that you like. What I would say is many successful founders want to live vicariously through you. They Mm -hmm. still hopefully see themselves in you. So try to find somebody who, where you're their Mm -hmm. mini-me. And and then the most important thing is make it a regularity where you're getting together either once a quarter, once a month, or if you can, like checking in every other week if it's somebody who you really care about. It doesn't have to be that long of a period of time, but the regularity is important because when you're in crisis, then it's too late. Ravi, it's been awesome talking with you today, diving into the land of B2B startups. It's a blast. I think you gave some really great practical advice for anybody who's thinking about starting a company these days. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was a real treat. Thanks for and, doing it. And go go after it. Whatever, <laughs> exactly. Whatever's in your mind, go do it. Thanks for listening to our show. As always, we would love to hear your feedback. Tell us what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. 